You can flip open to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10. It says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Um, finished up the book of 1 Corinthians last week, and uh, sometimes when we finish up a book, we'll do like a week to review uh, that book and just kind of remember, you know, it's been 36 weeks and this is, this is kind of what we have spent time laboring in. And uh, so as I was just praying about where to teach next and there was discussion with the elders about what, where to go next, um, just uh, was thinking, okay, man, we could do that review, that'd be good. And then I was just reminded by the Lord about, um, you know, last, about January in 2013, uh, the Lord had moved on us to do a, about an 11-week series called His Church. Anybody remember the His Church series? A couple people. <laughs> and uh, during this series, we just looked uh, with a heart to have a passion restored for the bride of Christ, for the church of God. Jesus says, it's my church. And so we uh, took 11 weeks and we looked at what is the church? What is the purpose of the church? You know, what are my duties and obligations in the church? And, and what are the church's duties and, and obligations to me? And for 11 weeks, it, um, we dove into that and, and just studied in depth, almost like a seminary type course on that. And uh, studying the doctrine of ecclesiology, which means the study of the church. Uh, and then as that series uh, ended, felt the Lord had us go into 1 Corinthians, not only because it was the book after Romans as we walked through the scriptures, but because much of what we learned in the His Church series was applied and affirmed in the 1 Corinthians book. And so for the last 36 weeks, we've looked at um, the church in Corinth and the affirmation of many of the um, church doctrine principles there in Corinth. And so uh, before we just kind of moved on uh, and with the vision and the direction that the Lord is giving the elders for our body, um, felt that this was, that we were to take about five weeks and instead of doing a His Church review, we're going to do a This Church review. And we're going to just kind of look at a year in review of where God has had us in our series our series of His Church and our series of First Corinthians. And we're going to do just kind of a, a double-time review of what God has had for us. It's going to take about five weeks, and, uh, and today is going to kind of be an introduction study. We're going to be looking at who and what is the church and its chief aim of existing for the glory of God. And so before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we have much to cover today. Um, Lord, the, the doctrine of the church is a major part of the gospel. Uh, how we view the gospel will affect how we view your church and, um, and how we live among each other and how we care for one another, how we are cared for, how we are 
uh, move towards holiness, how we evangelize the nations, how we give glory to our God. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would give us just bigger minds to comprehend these truths once again and to be um, convicted where we've fallen short and to just turn to your grace to uh, just be transformed by the gospel as, uh, as we do this series, Lord. And then whatever you would have from us, from this, Lord, that we would just be um, just obedient to your great plan. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we've asked the question, you know, what do you think of the church when your friends and family and co-workers hear of church? What is their first thought? Uh, it's important because the church is part of the gospel. So are we representing the church well? Are we representing the gospel well uh, to our friends, to our community? Many people at best think the church is a social gathering for good people to pacify their consciences, have some sort of positive impact in the world, make themselves feel good, maybe encourage good behavior, um, helping others in need. That's what the church does. Maybe that's what the community thinks. Uh, at worst, the church is dead it's uh, unorganized, it's a worthless institution full of lifeless, ignorant, alien, judgmental, hypocritical, arrogant haters, one man said in describing the church. John Stott, a Scottish preacher, said the way you answer this question depends on whether we're talking about the church in ideal or the church in reality. Because when we hope of the church, when we speak of the biblical church, we speak of this marvelous community of God made up of men and women of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. It's this ultimate multicultural, multiracial, multinational community who lives and sacrifices the entirety of their lives to love God and worship Him and serve the entire world with the gospel. But that's the ideal. The reality is so often it's, it's you and it's me and our weaknesses and our struggling and our just living life together. <laughs> and it's not very glamorous sometimes, right? 200 years ago, the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, Timothy Dwight, penned this hymn where he says, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church, our blessed redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God, the walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers descend, to her my cares and toil be given till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Can you say with Timothy Dwight, I love your church, Lord. I love your bride. Or is the church something you're indifferent to, something that you could do without? Uh, kind of a necessary evil, perhaps, that comes and ruins a good weekend. How important should the church be in the life of an individual Christian? We pray that the Lord would restore our passion for the church and move us beyond the idea that once I've done my duty within a small time frame during the week or during the month, then I can just get on with my own life and live 
for myself. I would encourage you if you are here today and you might miss next week or miss a few weeks, I would encourage you to just be diligent in the next five weeks to make sure that you listen to the podcast if you can't be here, to let everything else just fade away so that you can be here or listen to the podcast or listen to the sermon so that you can get a full theology, a full doctrine of what God desires his church to be. And if we could take it a step deeper, this church to be. Not many people have a working definition of the church, even if they grew up attending in a church or serving a church. The early church would debate on many things. The Trinity, the relationship between the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. But one issue that did not not come up in debate is what constitutes the church. After Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, wrote a book called The Unity of the Church in AD 251, until Wycliffe wrote The Church in 1378, there was no significant book on the church. What place does the church have in your life? The doctrine of the church is of the utmost importance. One man said that it's the most visible part of Christian theology, and it's vitally connected with every other part. And Christ's work is the foundation of the church, and that work continues in the church. The fullness of the mystery of God in redemption is disclosed among his people, both locally in this local church and universally in the broad church across the globe. Mark Deaver wrote uh, uh, some incredible books on the church. He's, a, he's an author we read regularly uh, in our leadership. He writes, The church arises only from the good news of the gospel, and a distorted church usually coincides with a distorted gospel. For some, there's a gross immaturity to think that we can maintain growth as Christians apart from life live together with the people of God in the church. There's an utter lack of care for the church in the hearts of modern day America. And we've seen a blatant disregard for it a handful of times in our own church, in our, in our own community. Cyprian, who was the Bishop of Carthage and who was a martyr, said very well, No one can have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. And Calvin would later affirm this by saying, For there is no other way to enter into this life unless the mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at her breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh we become like the angels. That might be like a tall glass to drink in this introduction uh, sermon, but stick around for the next five weeks and we will see why the church is necessary as kind of the mother, as Calvin says, to protect and to grow and to nurse and to, uh, to stand alongside. And of course, few would agree with this sentiment today. John Stott said, The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. 
John Calvin said, if we do not prefer the church to all other objects of our interest, we are unworthy of being counted among her members. Perhaps the simplest way of saying it is in the words of our friend and professor and pastor Art Azurdia from Trinity Church in Portland, where he says, passion for the church is something that is distinctly and unequivocally Christian. He goes on to say, we can never despise the church, never ignore the church, never seek to live out authentic Christianity while keeping ourself at arm's length from the church. We can never be cavalier about the church. Those who love Jesus will love what he loves. It's as simple as that. While it's possible for a person to be a member of the church and not a Christian, it is not possible to be a Christian and not be a member of the church. And perhaps you're here today and you have no passion for God's church. It's for this reason that we have a review of the series on the church and the affirmations of that series through the book of 1 Corinthians. As we love on Jesus this time, we're going to see what he loves. And we love what our Lord loves. So hopefully somewhat quickly today, we had asked the question, what is the church? And if you were asked that, perhaps today you have images of a white building with a steeple and a bell or something, a bell tower, you know, isn't that where our mind goes? Even if our church doesn't have those things, that's what we think of. Maybe you think of the building. That's not at all what the church is. The church is not a building. And that's one reason we meet outside every now and then, just to remember, like, we don't need these walls to be the church. The word church in the Greek is ekklesia, and it means the community of all true believers for all time. Some marks of the church are that there's a universal church. And that means all the Christians around the world. We saw some uh, video today of Christian pastors in Andola, different languages, styles, and cultures. There's also the local church, which brings it home, brings it down to this body of believers. Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears uh, wrote a, a definition for the local church that I believe is very biblical and encompasses much of our series. It says, the local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to the scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of communion and baptism, are unified in the spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scatter to fulfill the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. And I like the end of that. It's all for God's glory, and it results in our joy. When we do what God wants us to do, it happens to make us happy. <laughs> it happens to give us joy. So there's the universal church, the local church, there's the visible church, and it's what people see. People see the, the visible church, but God sees the invisible church. Who is really part of this true gathering of, of people for all time? Martin Luther rightly defined the visible church as a community holding common faith in the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. So there's the invisible church. Everybody who goes to church is not a Christian, yet everybody who's a Christian will be part of the local church. Christianity is not just about church attendance. Have you ever heard that? Well, you know, Christianity is not just about church attendance, but that has morphed in America to Christianity isn't even about church attendance. And we're going to see over the next four weeks after this why it's necessary to be together and in community, living with one another, living life with one another, teaching one another, sinning against one another, and repenting for that. Because that glorifies God. Messing up and having victory. That's gospel. Serving one another. Being served. Another aspect of the church is its gathered and scattered form. Today we see the church in gathered form. This afternoon we go scattered, and it's just like a family. We are always a family, whether we're at the family reunion gathered, or whether we're scattered throughout the state or throughout the globe. Perhaps the most famous Protestant definition of the church is from John Calvin, who said, Wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. Eight points that we've gone over in the church series, and we'll look at many of them during this five weeks. Eight points being part of the church or the body of Christ is, first of all, regeneration, You need to be born again to be part of the church. You need to be a Christian to be a part of the church. Secondly, there need to be qualified leaders in the church, elders and deacons. Thirdly, there's the gathering together, that ecclesia, the community of people. There's the sacraments. There's unity in the Holy Spirit, and that is that we have doctrine that we agree on that we fight for, but then there's also non-essential things that we are um, that we have freedom in, and in all things we have love in. There's discipline in the church where we are disciplined for holiness. There's obedience to the commandments to love one another, and love always overrides like. <laughs> we love one another, and we obey the great commission. So we're going to look at those things over these weeks. We're going to combine a couple of them every teaching. Uh, Because a right definition for the church is so important and the well-being of the church and its members is at stake, Protestants have often defined the true church as a breakdown of the, uh, it's called the Nicene-Constantinople Creed, where it says this, it was created in uh, 381 AD, and it says that we Christians believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church, all right? That's kind of the, the creed of the early church. These, this creed reflects God in his unity and holiness and immensity and eternality and truthfulness. And in addition to that, many Protestant theologians have added four more marks to that. Examples include church discipline, Um, 
mission to evangelize lost people, benevolent giving of our resources. Driscoll and Brashears write, spiritually speaking, the church is the community of people who gather around the cross of Jesus to humbly repent of sin and trust in him and sing his praises and follow his example in every way. The church is the people who have benefited from Jesus' work on the cross, live in the light of it, and gladly proclaim it. How did the church begin? It's important to note that the church is not a human invention. It's a divine institution. I always remember uh, from my teenage years and going to school of ministry, that phrase that the church is not an organization, it's an organism. You know, there's life and it's this beating, breathing, active, powerful uh, organism. We see the church kind of beginning in the nation of Israel. Israel is called God's son and his spouse and the apple of his eye, his vine and his flock. And we see as Israel rejected Christ that that these Gentiles were come and grafted into the, the olive tree of Israel. This wild olive branch comes in and is brought in to, to continue that, to be a part of that, not to replace Israel because one day all Israel will be saved. There will be a revival among in Israel, but we see, as you look at that verse that we read today, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, is everybody still there? It says that you are a chosen generation or a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Where, where have we heard those phrases before? Reference to Israel, right? You can read the Old Testament and you see God's faithfulness and his promises to Israel and that is transposed in the New Testament as in God's faithfulness and calling to the church that we are a royal priesthood we belong to the king and serve the king we are the king's priests if someone came here today and said I am the queen of England's chief servant right hand guy you know I'm kind of the prime minister we would say, that is incredible, you know. That's incredible that you're here today and you're talking with us and you, you want to be a part of Prineville life for some strange reason. So the fact that we are the servants and the priests that minister to the God of all creation, it ascribes to the church unbelievable, incredible dignity. These titles are not given to anything else that God has ordained even to government that God has created, even to the family that is instituted. The family is never called a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That's the church, that's priestly dignity that's reserved for the church alone. We're a holy nation. We are citizens, not by physical ethnicity of being from Abraham's loins, But we are of this nation by what's called spiritual paternity, by God's grace. There's incredible value to God's church. We are a holy nation. Truly, the real one nation under God and one nation for God is the church of God. 
It's holy. It's the church that's over every other institution in the planet, set apart for him, finally for him, not for my own interests, not even for my own family. The church exists ultimately for him. We are his for him. This is a radical concept that is counter-American culture, counter-American ecclesiology. What Peter is saying here is that we exist as the church for God, for him, to him. And when we forget all this, and the church is once again viewed as just an organization that is here to meet my needs, then it better have results or I'm going to move along to the next place that's going to meet my needs rather than we're all a part of this together for each other ultimately for him. It's his. His own special people, Peter says, were the very possession of God. This stresses that God owns us. He has acquisitioned us. He's acquired us by considerable effort, I might add. Members of Israel and the church have seen Glimpses of God's glory. Isaiah saw the cherubim in Isaiah 6 worshiping before the Lord. And in the New Testament, John sees the same angels worshiping the Lord. And so we see this special nation, God's special people. We see it being fulfilled in the church so that we might provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy. So that we might do what Israel was always supposed to do. And they would want that and they would turn and repent. Edmund Clowney, who wrote the book, The Church, uh, it's been known as one of the best introductions in print to the doctrine of the church. He writes, the story of the church begins with Israel, the Old Testament people of God. We asked, whose church is it? We go to Jesus's statement at Caesarea Philippi, when he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, you are Peter, on you I will build this rock. Or excuse me, I'm sorry. You are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. I love that. Jesus, it's the first reference to the church. And Jesus says, I will build it. And it is mine. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the first mention of the church in the New Testament, Jesus says, it's mine. And I'll tell you what, we as elders and leaders in this church, it's so quick, like, I come to my church, and my church, and just somehow, like, God has, like, taken that to be like, I just never claim ownership of this, because it's just, it's his. It's his church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Not only does he say, it's mine, but he says, I will build it. It's true that the value of an object increases in direct proportion to the significance of the person to whom it belongs. If a famous architecture built a built an architect built a building, then it's of more value because this guy built it. Um, you know, as you watch Pawn Stars or some of these other shows, or if you go into these you know stores where they're like, this, one of them, I remember chuckling, um, 
the saddle that Kevin Costner rode on in Dances with Wolves was worth just like like a million dollars or something like that. And it was like, whoa, Kevin Costner's booty touched it, and it's like worth a ton of catch. Did I say that from the pulpit? I'm sorry. Nikki, can you erase that part? Or Greg, you do that now, erase that part. You know? And so whoever owns something, that gives it its value. Not only who owns it, but what did they purchase it with? So if Jesus says, the church is mine, and in the New Testament you see it locally, and you also see it universal, it's mine, I will build it, that gives it value. But not only that, we see, why is it his? Because he purchased it with his own blood. You can gauge the value of something by how much you'd be willing to pay for it. And Jesus said, I love this so much, I will pay for it. Ephesians says that Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. So how much worth does the church have? Peter says, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the God-man. So how much value does the church have? We're going to be having times where I bring in from 1 Corinthians to just affirm these things. And in Corinth, uh, the church in Corinth read from Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Corinth, the black sheep of the churches, you know, they were kind of that, Man, those guys are like tough to deal and get along with, you know, but they were still the church and they were bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And he says one chapter letter to the, one verse, I'm sorry, one chapter letter to the Corinthians, you were bought at a price. Chapter after chapter, you were bought with a price. Church, even a dysfunctional church, even a church where there are cliques, there's sexual immorality going on. Jesus says, you're mine. I will build you. I will rebuke you. I will remove your lampstand. I'm walking in the midst of you. You are mine and I bought you with my blood. I have purchased you. Acts 20, 28, Paul says to the Ephesian elders that you need to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That gives the pastors and, and elders and shepherds incredible responsibility. The church is incredibly valuable and precious because it is the personal possession of Jesus Christ. He bought her. It is his church. The church should be regarded as important to Christians because it is important to Jesus. He founded the church, and I've got references for every one of these things, but for the sake of time, I've got to blow through them. Christ founded the church, purchased the church with his blood, intimately identifies himself with the church. The church is called the body of Christ, the dwelling place of his spirit, the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. Luke tells us and Revelation tells us that, that it's God's instrument for bringing the gospel to the nations so that a great host of humanity might be redeemed to himself. 
John Huss, who was a 15th century Bohemian reformer, put it this way, every earthly pilgrim ought faithfully to love Jesus Christ the Lord. He's the bridegroom of the church and also the church herself, his bride. 15th century reformer. These guys were laying down their lives for Christ. And they said, if you love the groom, then you love the groom's bride. The eternal authority of Christ's teaching on the church should motivate Christians to study the word of God and hear what it has to say about the church. A wrong ecclesial uh, Teaching and practice obscures the gospel, but a right teaching on ecclesiology and a practice on it will clarify the gospel. Mark Deaver wrote in his book that Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christians living together in local congregations make the gospel visible. The church is the gospel made visible. We put it in a visible form and make it a spiritual reality. We are God's people who God has brought out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. And this shapes everything that we do in our church. So what should the church be doing? What is the mission of the church? As we studied a few weeks ago on what I call Radical Sunday, we proclaimed that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. And we then said, the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. Seems a bit narcissistic until you realize that he's the only one ever in all of history and in the universe that actually has the right and is worthy for something like that, for a desire like that. He is worthy. So what is the chief end of the church? To glorify God, to worship God. That's the number one thing the church should be doing. The true goal of the church's life and actions are the worship of God, the edification of the church, and the evangelism of the world. A strong case could even be made regarding financial giving as an element of public worship in lieu of Paul's instructions to the Corinthians. Each of these purposes serve for the glory of God. And Peter's going to show us these four incredible ways that God sees us as the church giving, uh, being given worth, giving God worth. When we look at what God has made us to be, it dictates what we should do. The French have a saying that nobility obligates. I don't know how that is in French. We actually have a, a guy that just moved to town. You remember Fred? He's from France. So I wish he was here to be like, Jean-Claude Van Damme. I don't know. No, but he would say it. It'd be awesome. The French say nobility obligates. It's the nobility of the church being owned by God, being his special possession that leads us to great, incredible obligations. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father, Kevin DeYoung writes. 
And so during these coming few weeks, we will remember and review that God has given us a threefold mission of upreach, inreach, and outreach. It's kind of a simple way to declare the church's vision, that we're to upreach to the Lord and worship him, that we're to reach into the church, and we'll see that in the weeks to come, and we're to reach out to the world. And so just today in our closing uh, kind of final time, we see that this first noble task, this obligation that we have is one of worship to the Lord. That as a church, we be theocentric, which means we are God-centered. We are Christocentric. We are Jesus Christ-centered. As a theological community, we keep God as the center. He is to have center stage. We are to applaud him, not anybody but to him if we applaud somebody it's because we're applauding god's glory upon their life and his grace shed upon them and we have a temptation don't we to put something else on the stage and not god when the main target the chief aim is the glory of god ezekiel 36 says that it was for my holy name's sake in which you have profaned among the nations for my great name's sake, that I will be hallowed before your eyes, that I will do these things. Why has the Lord redeemed us? Why has the Lord called us his own special people, a holy nation, for his own name's sake? Ephesians 3.10 says that it's to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. So the church of God is even supposed to declare God's incredible works even to demons and to angels. We glorify God among all creation as the church. And so as we look at our text today, I hope you're still there, 1 Peter 2, 9, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. We are owned by him as the church so that you may proclaim the praises. We are his for a purpose. And remember we studied on that radical Sunday that the purpose doesn't end with me so that you can get fat and sassy, so that you can live for yourself and build up comfort and luxury and be all about yourself for all eternity. That's why I've made you a special people. Uh-uh. It's so that you might proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Worship, glory. And we see it finally in the book of Revelation chapter five, where a group from every tribe, tongue, and nation cry out, you are worthy, for you have redeemed us to God by your blood. And you have made us kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And then it goes on to say, worship takes place. A thunder and thousands and thousands and ten thousands of thousands worship and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne to the lamb forever and ever. The church has been created with the primary task of worshiping. Edmund Clowney said about that reverent corporate worship, 
is not optional for the church of God. Rather, it brings to expression the very being of the church. It manifests on earth the reality of the heavenly assembly. There's many scriptures to go along with this. And as we go through this, you may consider getting on the church website and clicking on the banner as it goes by that says His Church. And you might listen to a more in-depth, robust sermon on the subject. Warren Wearsby says the fact that each individual believer can go to God personally and offer spiritual sacrifice should not encourage selfishness or individualism on our part. We are priests together, serving the same high priest, ministering in the same spiritual temple. The fact that there is but one high priest and heavenly mediator indicates unity among the people of God. While we must maintain our personal walk with God, we must not do it at the expense of other Christians by ignoring or neglecting them. We'll study that in the weeks to come, the necessary corporate gathering of the local church. It's about God's glory. Mark Deaver writes, no lesser matters are at stake in the church than the promulgation of God's glory throughout his creation. And he quotes Charles Bridges, that the church is the mirror that reflects the whole brilliant radiance of the divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of Jehovah are displayed to the universe. I hope that during this review of our series and our understanding of Corinth, having that affirmed in it, that we'll have more of an appreciation for the bride of Christ, understanding that the, pri the bride gives glory and as it says, proclaims the praises of the groom, of him who came to save us. That word proclaim means to show forth or publish abroad the praises and the virtues and the excellencies, his goodness of him who came to save us. That glory chiefly goes to God. Part of this worship and part of this glory isn't just gathering together and singing with a guitar and a piano or something. Worship is beyond that. Everything we do is for the glory of God. Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 8, I believe that it is, or, or 10, that whether we eat or whether we drink, that we would do it all for the glory of God. But part of being a God-centered, Christ-centered church for the glory of God is that we will constantly be before his mercy seat. We will constantly be worshiping before his throne, not only in song, but also in prayers. Not only in individual prayers, as we just read from Wearsby, but in corporate prayers together as a church. Corporate prayer keeps Christ at the center of a congregation. J.B. Johnston writes in his book, The Prayer Meeting and Its History, that a congregation without a prayer meeting is essentially defective in its organization and so must be limited in its efficiency. A prayer meetings fail in a as prayer meetings fail in a congregation, so will the ministrations of the pastor become unfruitful. The preaching of the word will fail to convert sinners and promote holiness in the professor's of 
religion. Richard Burr wrote a book called Developing Your Secret Closet of Prayer. A dynamic praying church must be built from the inside out, employing all levels of prayer, the secret closet, the family altar, the small group praying, and finally, the congregational setting. And so I'm excited as God is just moving us along in his story of our church that this Wednesday, we merged the Pulse Prayer Meeting with our Wednesday night Bible study so that we're not just a, a learning, hearing church, but we're a worshiping, growing, learning, ministering, praying church. And so I exhort you, if you're part of this church, that you would begin coming on Wednesday nights. It's going to be different than this. We're going to have it set up in a large circle similar to our fasting we're going to worship together. We're going to have a short message, and we're going to go to prayer for our church, for our world. We're going to pray specifically for the nation that we prayed for on Sunday. So Angola will be our nation this week. And I encourage you guys to come and labor in corporate prayer with our church so that we might be a Christ-centered church, relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit. J.B. Johnston, in a book called The Prayer Meeting and Its History, says history confirms the truth that wherever evangelical and vital religion flourish, there lives the earnest gatherings for social prayer. Do you long for a revival in Prineville? Do you long to see God glorified among the nations? It's not going to happen if we're not gathering together for prayer. We see it in the New Testament, the church would regularly pray together steadfastly. Charles Spurgeon says, brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. Samuel Chadwick, and these are, these are men that led revivals in their community. We can glean from them. Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. And when the early church saw the revival it saw, it was when they were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayer. Won't you come out this Wednesday night? Won't you come be a part of the church? Johnny, you can come on up. And as we close, we're gonna take communion and we're gonna remember what Jesus did on the cross. And as we grab the elements of communion today, we can just have a special outlook today that it was by the breaking of his body and the bruising of his body and the stripping and the whipping of his body and it was the shedding of his blood as we remember through these symbols that we have been saved from our sin, that we've been saved out of darkness and saved into this marvelous light, that we've been brought into this special people, this family group called the church. You might ask today, and I think it's a good question for the series is, how do I get in? How do I be a part of this club? It's not a club. It's a family. 
And it doesn't come from external attachment or external labors. It comes from a spiritual union by the Spirit of God changing the heart of man. That as man hears the Holy Spirit beckoning him towards salvation, they would humble themselves before God and they would receive the grace of God, the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Before you can come into this family, this, this body, this sheepfold, this vineyard, there's so many pictures in the Bible about what a church is, you must be born again. You must consider what you were. In our series, we studied in depth in 1 Corinthians that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, Paul says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Before you come into the body of Christ to be a member of the church, to be born again, you must remember what you were, that you are a sinner. Then you must consider what he's done. And 1 Corinthians goes right on and says, but such were some of you. You were these wicked things. You were sinners, but he's done something. He has washed you. He has cleansed you and sanctified you and justified you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He does a spiritual work where he comes in and he makes you a new creation. It's a work of the Spirit. You don't get into this beautiful nation of the church by just doing a bunch of stuff. You get in by surrendering to the grace of God. Receiving the grace of God. Letting the Spirit of God transform you, letting the blood of Jesus Christ wash you from all of your wickedness and all of your sins, letting the Spirit of God remove from you a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that can now beat and know God. Paul spoke heavily in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that it is not about external worldly wisdom and smartness and your strength but it is by the Spirit of God. He comes in and He changes and He transforms and He gives you His mind so that, you can, that your heart would beat to the rhythm of His heart, that you would know Him. God has revealed these incredible things to us by the Spirit. You must be born again. And so as we come to the table today, in kind of an introduction to the church series. I should say to, it's a review. <laughs> For some, it's the first time they've heard it. We come and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And why don't we just bow our head and close our eyes and just move to just a heart of prayer and responding to the Spirit of God. God would be beckoning you today to be a part of his church. There's value 
and his bride. And he wants to call you into the, the marriage. He wants to call you into the family. There is value. He wants to show you his great love and that he purchased you with his own blood. He wants to show you the value of the church locally and universally. Do you hear him calling you in today? As you come forward during this last song, take the elements of communion. And those of you that are Christians today, just come and, and sit in your chairs and ponder what Jesus has done to purchase the bride, his church. As you do that and as you partake in your own time today, you are declaring the gospel. You are declaring the life and the death and the burial of the Lord Jesus. Maybe for you today though, you just realize how you have fallen short of God's heart and God's plan. And just as we worship, maybe you would just bring your communion and you might just come and kneel in the front here before the Lord and just in a place of humble submission before the Lord, you would just say, Lord, I've been disconnected from something that you love so much. And I hear you by the spirit of God, by the love of God calling me in. And maybe you would just kneel up here today with your elements of communion and you would just tell the Lord that you're sorry and that you failed and you would receive forgiveness today. And by the spirit of God today, you would just allow him to bring you in to the church. And just as you're in humbleness before the Lord, you can partake of communion. Let's respond to the Lord today. Let's open our hearts and open our ears to what he wants to remind us of for some today and what he wants to instruct us in for others today. Come forward as you're ready, grab the elements and partake as you've just examined your heart before the Lord and worshiped him.